today's uh, scripture reading is Psalm 46. Psalm 46. For the director of music of the songs of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, Welcome. If if you're uh, just joining us maybe for the first time this year, uh, we're uh, we're beginning the year with a series of messages for Epiphany uh, on prayer. And Epiphany is a is a moment in the church year every year where we ask this question, if, uh, if Advent and the waiting process that we, we just walked through and, and the coming of, of Jesus and the incarnation at Christmas and, and what we see about Christ in the Gospels, if those things are true, how then do we live? How do we live in light of, um, in light of Christ's coming and in light of Christ's claims uh, what changes about the world, our personal world and the world uh, at large, because Jesus is who he says he is. So um, we felt like there wasn't anything more uh, important that we could focus on uh, in, in light of those questions than prayer. Um, how do we talk and listen to God? Talking and listening in any relationship are, are cr- crucial aspects of communication, and they're how our relationships develop. So how do we posture ourselves before God? How do we uh, experience the presence of God? Maybe that feels like something that you uh, revel in and delight to even, even the mention of the presence of God is something that just like kindles joy in your heart. Maybe for some of you, you're like, yeah, that's one of those things when you talk about it, it always makes me a little angry because I feel like other people get that and I don't. Um, what does it mean to, uh, to really commune with God in prayer? And that's what we're going to be focusing on over the next uh, eight, eight weeks now um, of this Epiphany series before we get to Lent. And so what, what difference does pray, prayer make in our lives in the world? We're sort of taking the, the, the series and splitting it in half. This first half is asking the question, what does prayer do in us? What, is, what does it change uh, in our lives? And then the second half of the series is, uh, what does prayer do in the world? Um, it doesn't make, you know, make any difference. So that's where we're headed. You guys all right with that? Great, because that's definitely what we're doing. Um, so yesterday, um, an old friend uh, of mine came into town. I hadn't seen this person in, in several years, and we've spent, uh, before the last uh, sort of half decade, we spent a bunch of time together together. Um, 
And it was cool to have him in the house and sort of him getting to know our family again, getting to know some of my kids that, uh, you know, the last time he saw them, they were, they were, they were infants. And uh, I used to meet with this guy every week um, at, at a diner with two other guys, and we would share our lives and pray together, and we talked about many, many meaningful things. Um, so it was just interesting to note, like, you guys will be familiar with this reality. When you have a shared history with someone— and then there's uh, some amount of time that passes, and then there's a current reality that they're, that they're catching up on, that you're, that you're catching up on. And um, both the shared history and the current moment are, are important to, to, to the, the specifics of, of, a, of a conversation. And um, the longer, actually, that I live in relationship with God, um, the more I, I am actually grateful for that dynamic um, uh, for having a shared history, something that, you know, what I'm dealing with right this moment is not the sum total of everything. And that's really important. There, there are things that have come before, and those things that have come before are really important for informing the current reality. And if we're going to develop a conversational relationship with God, I think before too long, you'll, you'll experience that exact reality, that you have a shared history. Some of you have sort of journals in your home of, of, of communication with God that you can look back on now and say, I don't know, I, like I'm overwhelmed by the current mo- moment that I'm in and the circumstances and the moods that I'm feeling and, and all this stuff, but I can look back over a shared history. And that's kind of what I'm hoping we can cultivate is a shared history of communication with God. Because of that, there's more and more parts of the scripture that feel to me like an old friend, um, and Psalm 46 is definitely in that category. Even when we had sort of targeted for this week to talk on uh, be still and know that I am God, I went back and looked at this psalm, and I just remembered how much history um, I have with, with this prayer. Like, just a, as a side note commendation to you, if, if you don't already read the psalms regularly and you want to know how to pray, there is no better place to learn. For, for all of, of the history of faith, both of, of, of the Jewish people following God and, uh, and, and Christianity, there's no better place, there's no laboratory better for learning to pray than the Psalms. There's not a single sort of like uh, a, emotional plot point on the spectrum of human experience that's not found in these 150 Psalms. And, and Psalm 46 is, is one for me that, that feels like an old friend because I have some shared history. Um, and I also try to bring it into my current reality on, 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 a, regular, on a regular basis. Um, the first time I remember taking note of Psalm 46, um, it, uh, and this is a story, honestly, if you've been around for especially the early part of our 10-year history as a church, you've, you've heard this before. But um, our first worship leader was in his first year of marriage, and this was before our church had gotten started. And uh, we were living in Florida at the time, and the two of us had fled from a hurricane to Florida, and a group of us were at his parents' home. Um, and uh, his wife was injured really seriously in an accident while riding a horse. Um, and, and the horse disappeared over this hill, and then the horse came back without her on the horse. And that was alarming on its own. And then there was no, uh, there were no, there's no sound. And um, if you know our first worship leader, Zach's wife, Stacy, if she could make a sound, she certainly would have made a sound um, and, and gotten us there as quickly. So I remember that how this one of my vivid memories is just sprinting through this field with that impending sense that something's wrong and coming over the ridge and seeing Stacy uh, laying there and, you know, you could just tell right away that her posture wasn't right. She was contorted on the ground and we got there and she was unconscious and, um, you sort of, everything goes fast and slow at the same time. And we, you call the, the ambulance and, 
Uh, they, they come and it, it's like you have no sense of how much time has passed and you get to the hospital and you're trying to find out what, what the exact status is. And I remember sort of walking a few steps behind Zach everywhere that he went and I had this distinct moment where, I, where there was two blue double doors at the hospital and he comes through and I'm sitting in the waiting room and I sort of stand up and I see him like get ready to give us an update and he can't, he just crumples into tears and falls on the ground and says, she's, you know, basically like she's not ever going to walk again. And that was, the, that was the diagnosis. She had broken her neck in four places. Um, and, you know, those, those moments. I mean, I was, I was young. I was in my 20s. But the intensity of those moments sort of sears something in your memory, like the colors and the, and the, and the, the smells and the sights of that hospital are so, they're so they're, like I can call them back really, really easily. I remember, like, not knowing what to say. My best friend's going through something that um, I'm not even married yet. I, don't, I can't really imagine, like, how do you, the two of you have these plans for a life together, and then in a moment, it evaporates that that's, you know, not going to be the, the situation. And I remember sometime in those first, like, three days that we were in hospital, Zach was, like, thumbing through the Bible, desperate for something from God, and he came across this psalm, Psalm 46. And he came in and he sat down next to me and he's reading, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And he, I had grown up forced to go to church my whole life. And in the South where I was experiencing this, it was like Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday so whatever you think you're dealing with, think about that. Sunday, Sunday night, and Wednesday. That's how much I was in church. And yet this felt like the first time after all this stuff I had heard about God where I was seeing someone that I knew and respected and trusted and loved and was walking through in some way the very same tragedy actually draw real sustaining life from a promise of God that shouldn't make sense. Whatever peace beyond human understanding is, I was seeing Zach be propped up in his very being by peace that seemed to transcend human understanding. And I was watching in a way that registered for me as, a, as an adult for the first time, someone experienced this thing I had only heard about. They were, they were drawing from this well. How could my friend really believe and experience God as refuge and strength in the middle of such an uncertain and chaotic time? I can't hear this psalm without thinking of that time. And it makes me so grateful for the shared history with a poem like this, actually with a prayer like this. And I just want to commend to you, if you'll write down your prayers, if you'll make some record. Like last week we said, for the next nine weeks, what if you began some simple prayer practice that's different than the one you've had? What if you began to talk and listen to God? And what if it was some way, whether it's a voice recording or, or writing it down or whatever way makes sense to you, you just began to record some of your prayers, I promise. If you do that, there'll come a time when you look back on those prayers like old friends, and they'll give you such comfort because they'll remind you of your shared history of relationship. Like I think about how, how I was counting on God and, and how in, in some ways Zach was counting on me to be a friend. We had these moments where I remember like the first time we ever laughed after that. Like we were leaving the hospital and I was making fun of how my mom has a recovery noise that she makes when she's done laughing. So it's sort of the signal that she's done laughing and then to move on and catch her breath. She should be like, ha, 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 me. And... And I did that, and he's like, my mom does that, and he's like, the stupidest thing ever, not that funny, but we were like about to crash the car, hysterically belly laughing, tears in our eyes at like how our moms laugh. And 
we were counting on God and counting on one another, and it's just like such, such a beautiful moment. And not every story, <laughs> um, yeah, I'll say looking back, I think about the sweetness of that provision before we knew it was going to happen, and I also think about the miracle. One month later, literally against everything the doctor said was going to be possible at first, one month later, Stacy walked out of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, um, and uh, she was misdiagnosed at first, and there was a, a, a miracle of healing, I believe, that took place. Uh, I don't know what you believe about that, but I have enough time now and enough tragedy under my belt to know that not every prayer that you ask for healing like that works out as you would choose, but I still think that this psalm works, that even in the midst of whatever you're going through, before you know the result, you can be still and know that God is God. And just as a note on the text, actually, the people who wrote this uh, knew, knew that as well. Um, you look through the Psalms, and tons of them are like David, 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 and then there's like a few Solomon, 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 and then there's like Asaph, who comes in sometimes, and then there's the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah wrote this one. And um, just, I'm not going to get into it, but have a look, if you want, at the conflict in number 16 between Moses and the sons of Korah. Things don't go great for the sons of Korah. Uh, they have a crisis of faith and experience a massive tragedy that affects them for generations. So it's really important that the sort of descendants from this horrible tragedy of crisis of faith and, and, and sort of rebelling against God are now writing, God is a refuge and strength. Like when they say, though the earth give way, that's literally from their family history. And so they're drawing from a shared history um, as, as well. And then we get to the end, like the end of the psalm, all the things that have been promised, God's a refuge and strength, God's, God's gonna, gonna bring peace, God's gonna be there for us, God's, gonna, God's a covenant God that you can count on. You get this beautiful, important instruction that I think is, is absolutely essential for us regarding prayer. This is what we're gonna spend the rest of our time on. Be still and know that I am God. I think there are some essentials that are packed into these few words that, that will help us grow, access, and experiential knowledge of God. Um, so I just wanna see if we, if we can hear this invitation and instruction in a way that we'll, we'll do that, will help us connect with God. So first of all, be still. A friend of mine was, was talking to me when we were first planting uh, this church about the difference between like planting a church in a city center like New York and planting a church um, like in a more rural or suburban place. And he said, sometimes your challenge in a suburban or rural church is to get people, to get people, uh, to get people active, to get them involved, to get them c- coming out and showing up. And uh, he said, the challenge in the city churches is the exact opposite. It's to get people to stop, to get people to rest, to get people to be still. And I don't know if that stereotype actually has played out all all the way, but um, one thing I think is is really challenging, maybe the most challenging aspect of this entire endeavor for many of you will be just the beginning of this. Be still. Like if you skip ahead to know, know God and, 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 and know that he's there, like that, that's an active pursuit. You can, you can study, you can learn, you can read, you can listen to a podcast. There's, there's active steps you can take, but the beginning is the hardest, the be still. Knowing God is something I can do on the run. It's something that can be an active pursuit. I can set goals for myself and tick, and tick those boxes off. But for many of us to be still, right, is truly the challenge for many of us, myself included, right from the moment we wake up, 
whether it's because of an early alarm or a screaming toddler kicking you in the face, that was my actual morning, um, or the abrupt end of a dream, right from the moment many of us wake up, we are bombarded with urgency. We are bombarded with, you can't wait, you're already behind, there is so much that has to be done right now, and, and this, this person needs you, or this uh, task needs you, or this thing needs you, and if you don't get to it right away, and so right away we're bombarded with urgency, but we're also bombarded with our essential place in this urgency, and so if we don't get to work doing the things that, that we're supposed to do, then balls are going to be dropped, people are not going to be cared for, so Our life is not quietly waiting for us to pick it up and choose when we will begin. It is so often fully insisting that we get to work on things right now. And so perhaps the most easiest and initially satisfying thing in the world in any situation is to get started tackling things, knocking them down. Maybe then once everything has been dealt with, then we could be still. That's actually a, a rhythm we're a little more comfortable with. And yet it says, first, be still. There's an interesting reality that you see even in the, in the book of Genesis, and I know this, depending on where you are on the spectrum of faith or, or familiarity with the tradition of Christianity, Genesis may be the place you have the most problems, and especially the beginning, it's like, what's, what's going on here? How does it relate to the basic notions of what we know about science? But um, there is something really sort of important that takes place in the account of Genesis and how the world and human beings are initiated by God. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is that human beings in the account, whatever the days are, whether they're 24-hour periods or thousand-year eras or whatever, the first one that takes place after human beings are made is the Sabbath. I heard it over here on the left. You guys, you guys win. You guys win the prize, Right? The first rhythm that human beings experience in that that week of creation is rest. So whatever human beings get up to after they they come onto the scene, and there's a bunch of stuff, right? There's relationship that that takes place. There's meaningful work that gets done. There's a co-sharing and creating with God, right? There's this... um, authority given to take the natural resources of the world and make artifacts, take this wood and make a chair, take these sounds and make music, right? Build cities, build families, and and there's like so much meaningful stuff to do, and yet they work from rest. And it's one of the most difficult things that we have to relearn over and over again, and we have to relearn it in prayer. The first day, whatever else it was, was a Sabbath day. It was an invitation to be still, an invitation to know that before you're defined by anything that you do, you're just defined by someone who is loved, someone who is created, someone who's made in the image of God, someone who is delighted in. Before you've done anything to prove your worth or pay your rent or show yourself off, before any declaration of your value from anyone, human, any human being, God is saying, I love you. I celebrate you. I initiated you. You're mine. Be still and let that wash over you. Philip Kinnison, in his book, Life on the Vine, uh, talks about what a far cry that, that first reality is from so much of our lived experience. And I just resonated with it. It was helpful for me. So I want to give you just a, a few of these sentences. By precisely segmenting time and transforming it into a, a scarce resource, the West has created the conditions for the appearance of a new virtue, productivity. 
Productivity is simply this, a quantifiable amount of work achieved during a specified length of time. The more work per unit of time, the greater the productivity. Few virtues are exalted more in Western societies, a situation that exerts subtle and not so subtle pressure on every citizen. For example, once productivity is regarded as the key benchmark by which we assess our worth, the question that naturally follows is this, what do you have to show for your time? There are a few places in our society where we are encouraged to wait. When combined with self-interest, the fixation on speed accelerates the drive toward immediate gratification. We want what we want, when we want it, and that is almost always now. In contrast, waiting involves slowing down. Waiting inevitably involves wasting time. Perhaps that is why the few situations that routinely require us to wait bring out the worst in us. Ever visit a DMV? There is something liberating about uh, remembering that our God isn't in a hurry. There's something liberating about remembering that God entered our world, moved among us at a walk, and demonstrating the the love of God most permanently by being nailed down for us. And there's something liberating about remembering that in, in doing so, God acted to justify us, even if we're not sure how, thereby freeing us from the need to justify ourselves by hurrying here, there, or accomplishing this or that. What if one of the most essential things you could learn about prayer is that you don't have to do it to be loved by God? There is something powerful, there is something life-affirming, faith-declaring, healing, and good about be still. I think the norm of prayer is, is, is meant to be first that we are still, that we become aware of God. But I also want to say that, and I was listening to um, one of my heroes, his last public address in New York that I know about, Eugene Peterson, before he retired, um, and he was saying this basically exact thing about like the crucial importance of setting aside Sabbath time and, and still time. And then he made a, a pivot, because I was like excited to go home and tell my wife, and we had like two, two babies in the house at the time. And uh, he said, unless you're a brand new parent... He's like, in that case, you get like five, six, ten years off from this, be still, and then you come back to it. So, I think there's a balance in there. I think if, if the pressures of family life, and I know this isn't true of everyone in our, in our congregation, but if the pressures of family life are, are, are such that like, yeah, you have to take care of a life right when you get up, and you can't be still the first thing, I don't think God, like last week we said, don't pray, don't pray, with, you know, don't pray what you can't, pray what you can. Don't be still when you can't. Be still when you can. And so if you can prioritize and make it first, I think there will be tremendous benefits. I think that's the right order. But if you can't be still right away, then be still later. Just don't forego being still altogether. And I just say that to remove any, any guilt um, from you. This, this, this next thing was from Philip Yancey's book on prayer. And I found this really helpful. This is the last long quote of the sermon, guys. We're, we're doing fantastic but I, I love this because it's like he basically says this, this instruction is to like take a vacation in the middle of your day. So be still and know that I am God. The Latin imperative for be still is vacate. As Simon Tugwell explains, God invites us to take a holiday, vacation, to stop being God for a while and let him be God. 
Too often we think of prayer as a serious chore, something that must be scheduled around other, appointment, uh, other appointments, shoehorned in among other pressing activities. We miss the point, says Tugwell. God is inviting us to take a break, to play truant. We can stop doing all those important things we have to do in our capacity as God and leave it to him to be God. Prayer allows me to admit my failures, weaknesses, and limitations to one who responds to human vulnerability with infinite mercy. I hope that creates the sigh of relief in your spirit that it creates in mine. (laughs) Be still and know that I am God is God saying, hey, hey, right after you wake up, take a vacation. (laughs) Like start with me reminding you who you truly are before you get off proving who you really are. The New American Standard Bible translates this phrase, be still, as cease striving. Cease striving, right? There there may be no more word that defines, right, uh, the hustle of our city more than striving. In the the beginning of this prayer, the Hebrew, the Hebrew, like literal Hebrew description translation comes across like, drop it. Eugene Peterson says, get out of the traffic. So I just want to say this, unbelievably simple. Last week I said, will you... Will you make a commitment to nine weeks to, it, to begin some simple prayer practice that will carry you up to Lent, that might begin a conversation with God in a way that's different than you've had it before? And I want to add this to it. What if you began just for the first two minutes of those prayer times in stillness? Maybe that'd be the first time you've ever done that. Maybe your mind will wander like crazy for the first minute and a half. Maybe your mind will wander like crazy for all all the first two minutes, for all the first week. But eventually, you will find something in that stillness that is so important. What the the prayer masters of of our faith call the recreating silences. Like learning to be alone in your own skin in a room and know that that's enough, that God is there and you are there and God's not in a hurry. Like God's like, what if I have all the time in the world? And like, what if I'm outside of linear time in the way that you think about it and I can go back and undo your mistakes? What? Science fiction? I don't know. But what if we tried this little countercultural act that says without saying anything that our worth is not determined by what we do. We, we're just still. And the next part is, and know that I am God. So what are we invited to know? I just want to say this really quickly. The word knowledge here is scandalous. It's like Adam knew Eve. It's like that level of intimacy. I, I don't know exactly where to go for it. I think that's metaphor. Um, but like, we're not talking about, like, I stockpiled information about God in my brain. I memorized three verses, da-da-da. It's like, I'm so intimately known by God and knowing God that his reality becomes the foundation of my reality. And his reality is relational, so therefore my reality becomes re- relational. The first thing of two very simple things that you're invited to know is that there's something more powerful than you. Right, this is, the, this is the place, right, almost any time you meet someone that's hit an absolute wall in their life, right, every pathway, like plan of recovery, what it begins with is acknowledges that there's a power higher than yourself, that, that you can't get yourself out of this situation by yourself. And that's true for, 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 for the addict or the person who thinks that they're, they're sailing along. Actually, like they need to become aware of the way their pride has actually become a trap for them. 
I heard a story of a man who was in recovery from alcoholism. He was going to AA meetings, and he was beginning to get some, some days of sobriety under his belt. And he had a sponsor, and he told his sponsor this. He said, I'm in on everything except the higher power. Like, this is great, the meetings are great, but I'm not down with the higher, higher power thing. And maybe some of you feel that way. I know there are many in our city who feel that way. Like if prayer is just being spiritual and it's just, you know, maybe going, going to this stretching class or, or, or being quiet, you know, sitting crisscross applesauce on my couch for, for 15 minutes or going through my, my meditation app, like I'm fine with that. But if it's actually talking to a real being who's out there, that's a little bit weird. A being who initiated me, a being who knows all about me, that feels like I'm in on everything except the higher power. And he's like, I can't get on board with this. The sponsor took him, this was Maine, it was in November, took him down to the beach and sat him like on a piece of driftwood. You can sort of smell the salt air and the sea spray is there. And he sits him down and he says, look out. He sees the birds sort of diving down into the water, sees the cliff over here on the left. The sponsor says, do you see anything more powerful than you? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) start there. And I just, I heard that story and it so resonated with me. If if you're like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to get on burrow with a personal God who wants a relationship with me, but I can at least acknowledge that in, in nature, in creation, there is something more powerful than me. Start there. Start with the reality that there is something bigger than you at work in the world, and you might not be able to name or explain all of it. And that's, if that's as far as you can get, that's something really powerful. If you can just be still and know that you're not God... <laughs> That's something important. Uh, I remember the priest from the Moody, Rudy, right? Um, my favorite football team, Clemson, just demolished Notre Dame in, um, in the college football playoff. And you can clap for that if you want, but you certainly don't have to. Um, and a bunch of friends text me all these Rudy memes and gifts over the week leading up to the game. They're like, God's on, on, uh, on Notre Dame's side. I was like, we'll see. I've met the Pope, and uh, I've literally held his hand. So um, anyway... I say all that to say that the priest in Rudy says this. He says, my whole life in ministry, I know two things. One, there is a God. And two, I'm not him. I think that's a powerful place to start in prayer. And many of you would be ready to go a lot further than that. But if, if you need just a starting place, prayer is beginning to see reality from God's point of view and to see that you're not in the center of it that there is something more powerful than you. And the second thing, and this is really important, I, I think this is the next step for the guy on the beach, is that this power presents as relational. This power presents as relational. We've talked about this many times before, but it means something really profound, that when the scriptures introduce God to us, they introduce three persons as one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the very being of God is community. Let us make human beings in our own image, says the phrase in Genesis. Jesus is praying at the very end before he's betrayed, and he says, Father, let them share in the goodness, the glory that we've had before the foundations of the world. Whatever God is, God is relational. God is love, and God is extending that love, right? You think about a person like Moses, and this is one example of many, right? Moses knew something of his vocation. I'm supposed to help these people get free, But his first initiation of his vocation was he kills an Egyptian that's oppressing an Israelite. And then he's like, shoot, messed up, got to flee. He flees to Midian. He works for 40 years in obscurity in Midian, tending the flock of his father-in-law. Knew something of his vocation, but had to flee. Now he's working in obscurity. Think about one day. 
Think about one month. Think about one year. Now think about 40. You had a sense that something was supposed to take place in your life, and yet you feel stuck in a perpetual waiting, and eventually it's like, this is never going to happen. Then all of a sudden, he's out on an ordinary day, and he sees a bush that's on fire but not being consumed, and he goes over, and, and the bush is like, take your shoes off, and he's like, what? And he's like, I want you to set my people free from the most powerful empire in the world. He's like, that's not me. He's like, I'm sending you, totally you. He's like, who are you even? And, and the bush says, I am. Whatever this power is, people are like, we're obsessed with power. (laughs) This is people's biggest critique about God. Why doesn't your power show up more in the places I want it to show up to change the circumstances in the way I want them changed? In the middle of the tragedy, in the middle of the joblessness, in the middle of longing for a relationship that I don't have, I want your power. And God keeps showing up and being like, I'm actually relational, (laughs) And if I give you my power before you're ready, you will absolutely mess it up and it will mess you up. The journey Moses goes on before he can handle the parting of the Red Sea is magnificent and it is formative. And we're like, just give me the thing. It's like, God's like, if I gave you the thing in like two minutes, you'd be like, give me a TV show. I got the thing. But this power keeps saying, I use my power to show love. I use my power to show mercy. I use my power to heal. I use my power to bring back from the dead. I use my power to unite. I use my power to to do justice. And the fruit of my spirit, when you really get to know me, when you're still enough to know me, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And when you know me, that's what gets exalted in your heart. And that's what gets exalted in your relationships. And that's why I want you to talk to me. Not so you can check off the box and say, I prayed and I know something about God. It's so it's like, I'm prayed and I'm drawn into God and becoming like God. And God is shaping my action, like the fruit of God's very character is shaping my real relationships. Here's the crazy unexpected ending of this little phrase. Be still and know that I am God. Put it on a shirt, put it on a Hallmark card. What do you guess if you haven't read it and I know you have, but what do you guess would come next? Be still and know that I am God. And your heart will be filled with the whispers of peace. Bless you. Goodbye. And everything will find its proper place. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. If the fruit of God's character is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the thing, believer or non-believer, that most people want exalted in any situation, in a, war, in a place of war, in a place of conflict, in a, in a place of poverty and lack, all the isms that we deal with as human beings. If God's real character could be exalted there, God could be exalted in that place, that would be significant. What do we do to, to get that accomplished? We get out there and get busy and start working, except he says, be still and know that I'm God. And I will be exalted among the nations. Matter of fact, you won't be able to participate in that fully unless you first begin with be still and know that I am God. Otherwise, you're just going to become an angry activist or a burned out change agent or whatever else. Like if you're not going to the well, Jesus puts it to his closest friends like, 
abide in me. Let my words abide in you. Let's be like a branch and a, and, a, and, a, and a tree so connected that the sap of the tree is flowing through your life. And that's what produces fruit. Otherwise, you're going to get disillusioned and frustrated and you're going to break yourself on the resistance of the world. You're going to break yourself on the systemic injustice. You're going to break yourself on the institutional evil. You're going to break yourself over the cultural messages. Be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. Guess who's not that worried about being exalted among the nations? God. Because he's going to accomplish it and we are going to have a share in it. But he's not like, oh man. You didn't do it, so I'm out on all that. (laughs) One of the verses in the the New Testament that changed my life is, um, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Basically, they're not just human, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, like things that trap you personally in your mind or in your behavior or in your relationships or in your city. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. How many of you know so intimately things in your life personally and in your city that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God? How on earth would God be exalted over those things? The counterintuitive logic of this psalm says, first, be still. Then know that he's God and we're not. And that he's going to be exalted among the nations. That there's something profound in how we learn to pray in that way. That's enough. Here's what I want to do. I just want to move through this prayer one more time. Literally the one sentence. And I want to give you, I'm going to put it on my watch so you know I'm not tricking you. One minute of silence. When you start praying, right, throughout this eight weeks, we're going to do two minutes of silence. So this is a warm-up silence. Okay, we're going to do one minute of silence. And then I'm going to read this sentence in a way that many contemplative sort of prayer uh, leaders would, would, would walk you through it. And then we're going to end with silence again. And that's going to be how we close. close this morning. So. Don't sweat it if you hear a noise or if a baby cries or if like someone crashes through the window. We're just going to be quiet for a minute. Starting three, two, one now. hear God say, be still and know that I am God.
be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be.